0: Now entering Nerdist.com
1: Hey, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator of the Nerdist Writers Panel and Nerdist Comics Panel. Do you want to see the Nerdist Writers Panel or Nerdist Comics Panel live? Are you going to San Diego Comic-Con? If the answer to both of these questions is yes, then you're in luck. Uh, we're doing two Nerdist Writers Panels, or a Nerdist Writers Panel and a Nerdist Comics Panel. We'll see who shows up on them. Uh, at at uh, San Diego Comic-Con. The the Writers panel is on Thursday, the 24th of July, from 3.30 to 4.30 at the Nerdist Space at Petco Park, which is going to be really cool. Uh, right now we have booked Neil Baer, who's the showrunner for Under the Dome. Uh, we also have some really cool folks uh, in the works that I can't announce yet, but, uh, you know, check, uh, check my Twitter feed, at Ben Blacker, uh, or go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Nerdist Writers Panel to see who else winds up on that panel on Thursday. Um, it should be a lot of fun. And then on Saturday, also from 3.30 to 4.30, also at the Nerdist Space at Petco Park, uh, Heath Corson and I will be hosting a Nerdist Writers Panel Comics Edition with some really cool guests, including Ben Edlund, who is the creator of The Tick and who's currently working on the Gotham TV show. Uh, Jill Thompson, who uh, created Scary Godmother, who illustrates the really great Beasts of Burden uh, and does all kinds of other cool projects. And um, Chris Robertson, who is the co creator of iZombie. Uh, the comic book on which the new Rob Thomas television show is based. So uh, we'll definitely talk to Chris about that as well as the other stuff he's working on. Uh, both of these panels, Thursday and Saturday at San Diego Comic-Con at the Nerdist Space at Petco Park. Uh, I believe it's on the sixth floor, something like that. You'll, you'll figure it out once you get there. Um, but come on down and join us. I think it's for badge holders, uh, only, although don't quote me on that, I'll be sure to put all of the information on our Facebook page, facebookcom nerdist writers panel. Check there for all the details, and I hope to see you at Comic Con. Uh, the Thrilling Adventure Hour has a lot of stuff going on there for all of the details, including a show that we're doing, which is a big crossover event with Welcome to Night Vale. Uh, is on Saturday night. But for all of those details and tickets to things, uh, go to thrillingadventurehour.com. See you in San Diego. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel and it's hosted by Ben Lecker, where he gets a bunch of writers and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. I was talking to Melissa there because says you guys are kind of hip deep in, we are in the thick, the thick of it. Season, we are in
0: uh, final season, midway through our final season, season five. We're going to be doing eight more episodes and uh, wrapping up the series, which is uh, it's you know bittersweet. Of course, I mean, I think you know we're all comfortable that this is the right decision, and we know that we want to bring the show to a really f- exciting and poignant conclusion you know, and we're excited to be doing it but it's also, you know, you work with the same people for many years, many of whom I've worked with even before that on Sopranos. So wow. it's it's sorta of, you know, it's like graduating from college and, you know, a lot of fun times and a lot of hard work and all that stuff. But yeah, it's it's uh it's exciting. It's it's you know, ending any series is more challenging because you're now as opposed to just Ending a season, you know, if there's a particular story you want to tell, you can say, well, we'll do that next year. <laughs> you know, Now that we know there is no next year and yeah. we've only got a certain amount of real estate in which to tell these stories, it's very painstaking in terms of what what are we going to do? What scenes are we going to do? You know, do you really want to spend three minutes on this or we could do something else? You know, wow. so it's a lot of... You know, it's sort of like landing a, uh, you know, a spacecraft on a particular <laughs> spot on the moon. You know, it's a long journey, and then you want to land exactly there. You know, and that's, that's where we're at. We're sort of approaching uh, the surface. At what point
1: in uh, last season or even before did you guys, did you and the writers become aware that this would be the
0: final season? Toward the end of last season. Okay. You know, starting to talk about the future and, you know, also like in terms of <coughs> history... You know, after 24, 25, not a lot happened. You know, it was like really, there weren't there were a couple of touchdowns in terms of the world we we're exploring, but you know, there was the Saint Valentine's Day massacre, there's the crash of 29, et cetera. We decided, you know, we were going to come back later. We wanted to come back toward the end of when it was clear that Prohibition was ending. So when we come back, it's 1931. So we're, we're jumping ahead you know, quite a bit uh, into the uh, future for our final year. So by 31, it was pretty clear Prohibition was a failed experiment. The Depression was taking hold. Things are really, you know, starting to change uh, was, into the, in the country. Was this an easy
1: conversation to have? And I don't. And again, we haven't yeah. talked about anything yet. Your okay. room or how it works. Yeah. but Was this
0: an easy conversation to have among the writers to say, Well, yeah. nothing much happens in this period of time. Pretty much, time. much. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we were already pretty familiar with the history. You know, part of writing the show is also knowing what comes ahead, because yeah. in case we wanted to set something up, we go, okay, this would be great because in season four, such and such will happen. Uh, so we already knew there wasn't a lot you know uh, again and, you know the show isn't necessarily about those historical touchstones but it was it was sort of more of the same in the mm-hmm. in the gangster world certainly so <laughs> the, the, well, once we came to that conclusion and we knew it was going to be the last season we said all right where do we want to spend our time how do we want to wrap this up the series begins literally on the night prohibition is enacted and we thought let's be you know toward the end there oh, 31 was a really pivotal year for a lot of other things too al capone went to jail lucky luciano sort of performed the commission it was like a lot of a lot of stuff so that was sort of seemed to be the place where we get the most uh, bang for our buck
1: oh, that's really cool
0: yeah um and but it also seems like a lot to bite off for eight episodes it is that's the challenge that's <laughs> the, that's the job you know there's a lot of story to tell in uh in eight hours and um you know we also ta- we also spend some time in Nucky's childhood, so you yeah. get to see what formed this guy and that that's really interesting too, so it's a lot of stuff, but yeah it's um, we're we're very happy with how it's laying out it's really nice. uh yeah was that childhood stuff stuff that you guys knew?
1: Over the course of these seasons?
0: Well, it's stuff that we, you know, we, we knew what his backstory was. We knew, you know, we've, we've touched on, you know, he's told some stories about his childhood and he and Eli, and we knew they had a sister who died, and we knew his father was abusive. We've actually met his father in prior seasons and relationships with his mother, how he met his wife, things like that. So there was enough backstory already written within the episodes that we already had a picture in our own minds of what this childhood was like. Now it was a question of... Depicting it, how did Nucky become Nucky? How did Nucky rise up to become this guy? We, we know he was at one point the uh, assistant sheriff and sheriff. We know he uh, was taken in by the Commodore. You know, so all these things. So these are these are parts of the uh, things we're, of his story that we're mm-hmm. exploring. Feels like you'd get a whole other series out of that. <laughs> it's it's what's really exciting because yeah, I mean, you, it, it certainly looks it's a completely different color palette, the clothing. We're, we're talking about eighteen eighty four. Uh, as opposed to... So we've got, you know, 1884, 1931. You know, there's a, there's a lot lot of different things going on, but it looks great. I mean, I'm so thrilled with what I've seen so far. You know, we're, we're filming episode three right now, and uh, the stuff that I've gotten back for episodes one and two is really, really exciting. That's great. Yeah.
1: Um, well, I want to I want to kind of go back. You know, we, I tend to visit shows at the end of them for some reason. Uh-huh. Um, but I want to talk about the beginning of Boardwalk. and. Yeah.
0: What story you were setting out to tell? I What was very what was interesting to me was uh, a couple of things. Uh, the beginnings of organized crime were interesting, this, especially after having just come off The Sopranos, mm-hmm. where which was really the end of it. And I think one of the first things Tony ever says is, I feel like I came in at the end of something. Mm-hmm. But he did. And this was the beginning of that something. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. Literally... Prohibition was the single event that made organized crime possible. It made millionaires out of criminals overnight, practically, and uh, it was it was a you know an incredibly failed experiment. Obviously, it just you know did not uh, work out in any way uh, that it was intended to. And, uh, and and the character of Nucky was fascinating to me. Uh, the real Nucky Johnson was a guy who was a you know fairly low level corrupt politician. Yeah. Yeah, very successful, county treasurer, of Atlantic City, but basically got a piece of every you know county job and city job, and it you know, was pocketing a lot of money. He lives very well. But here you have this guy who. Uh, is, for the most part, a uh, an honest guy, quote-unquote, compared to what we would regard as criminals. <laughs> suddenly, uh, you know, he's, he's in charge of a town that's on the Atlantic Ocean, and suddenly alcohol is made illegal. Overnight, this man is, you know, so popular, because every criminal in the country wants to be friends with him, because he's, he's viable and that's where the alcohol comes in, right through that ocean. So suddenly... He's got to change his entire outlook on things and change his game. And, and, you know, the question is, you know, how is this going to corrupt him Mm -hmm. and uh it's really uh you know an exploration of of that man and uh america and how things are changing and really the dawn of the modern age and how alcohol and organized crime sort of you know went hand in hand so there's a lot of really interesting things to to dig our teeth into yeah
1: Uh, it seems like and you know obviously between this and uh, your work on sopranos and wolf
0: of wall Street*. You've become the corruption guy. <laughs> yeah, that happens. <laughs> is, this, is this something that particularly interests you? It does. You know, it, it always has. It's funny. Somebody asked me a long time ago, what, you know, where did it start? And I really had to search my memory. And it started with the movie Oliver, uh, the Reality. musical. I wanted to be the Artful Dodger. I was fascinated with crime, that, that gang, have, being that gang. That was a very child-friendly version of being in a, in a gang. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just looked so cool, you know, and I, and I wanted to be that kid. And then like a year or two later, The Sting came out. Mm-hmm. And I became fascinated with con men and the idea that you could use your wits to relieve people of their money. And I just started reading and writing about crime. And of course, I grew up in Brooklyn, which doesn't hurt, you know, in terms of being <laughs> surrounded by mob-related things. And I worked in a butcher shop that was owned by a mobster. Uh, and, you know, sort of just by osmosis, I started to take all this stuff in and just started watching. We were lucky enough in New York to have... WPIX, which is the local channel 11, and they would just rerun the shit out of the Warner Brothers gangster movies and the Bowery Boys and all that stuff. So this was sort of like going to college for a kid who was interested in crime and criminals. So um, you know, I just I just started to you know get into it, and you know, as a you know, as I got older, you know, the, once The Sopranos presented itself, and I watched that pilot, I said. I know these guys. I know this world. I know how these guys think. I know. I know the psychology. I just understand. This is just something that comes naturally to me because I basically, you know, lived in and among it. So, it's you know, it just was something I really knew I could write well, and I enjoyed writing well. And it's, it's the, the whole psychology of it is very fascinating to me. People who live outside the bounds of society, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think most people find it interesting because we just live vicariously through you know, people who do things that we would never do. Always liken it to uh, riding a, a roller coaster. You, you could feel like what it must feel like to be to about to die, but you don't really have to die. Right. At the end of it, you go, you strap out, you go, holy shit, that was unbelievable. You just drop 300 feet and no consequences. This is sort of like, okay, you can spend some time with gangsters and what it might be like to hang out with Lucky Luciano or Nucky and Tony Soprano and at the end of it, you can shut your TV and you don't owe anybody money. <laughs> They're not coming looking for you to break your legs and, you know, it's sort of, you know, fun. And same thing, you know, Jordan Bell for Wolf of Wall Street. It's like, you know, most of us have not partied to anywhere near that extent, but it's fun to sort of take that ride and go, wow, this is interesting.
1: Well, and it is, uh, for you, and this is the awful sort of uh, Elvis Mitchell question, but it, it is, for you, a kind of con to do these fictions, right? I mean, you... As a kid growing up, fascinated with this kind of thing, you kind of right. have a choice of whether to
0: get involved. Yeah, 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 sure. Or if you have a proclivity for writing, right? Too. Yeah, this was the much the much safer way to go. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I've even made the observation: Jordan Belfort and myself worked, you know, a quarter mile away from each other on Wall Street Shire. on the day the wall, uh, the day the market crashed. He went to, to Long Island to continue what he was doing, and I went to L.A. to be a writer. And it was that, that event that sort of spun us into two different directions. I, you know, uh, look at Jordan, and I say, they by the grace of God. You know, I, as a guy who was interested in getting, you know, the idea that you could pick up the phone and talk somebody into doing something, mm-hmm. you know, it, there is a different version of myself. go, so, you know, Yeah, I, I could have ended up working for or with Jordan, possibly. Mm-hmm. You know, that might be, uh, you know, Terry Winter at age 26, you know, maybe. You know, I had hoped... I like to think I had the good sense to go. Yeah, that's not for me. And you know, went out and did something else. But you know, it was um, it was a real turning point. Were you? Were you, what was your relationship to writing as a young person? Uh, I didn't write at all. I went to a I went to an automotive high school, really? a trade high school yeah. called William E. Grady High School in Brooklyn. They taught uh, auto mechanics, plumbing, air conditioning, mm-hmm. et cetera. I was in the automotive section. It was a very non-college-oriented um, school, to say the least. No, practically no one from that school went on to college. I was going to be one of those people. Mm. I, I wasn't particularly interested in being an auto mechanic. I, w- I was working in a deli and wanted to do that. Um, I had a school, uh, an English teacher in my junior year, uh, Laney Gilbert, who I'm still friends with, who used to make us write short stories on Fridays. And she kept me after class one day and said, ''You're really talented. You're a very talented writer. You should consider going to college.'' And I said, ''Well, that's not going to happen. I'm not interested in doing that.'' She (laughs) said, ''Well, I'm just telling you, and you're really good at this.'' And this was the first adult that ever took me aside and said, ''You're good at something, particularly writing.'' So it was always in the back of my head. So my life took a couple of twists and turns, and it came time when I was around 19, almost 20, that I realized I should go to college.'' And I remember what she said, oh, you're a good writer. So I, I started taking journalism classes because <laughs> that was sort of, you know, I didn't, creative writing was not really, I couldn't get my head around the idea of I Forget about being a TV writer or music. You know, it was just like so alien. That was like something other people did. But journalism, I said, like, okay, I get that. You it's write a job. It yeah, you, you, write, you write an ar- article for a newspaper. I understand yeah. this. So that was really it. Um, my, you know, I loved movies and TV. I mean, I inhaled every, you know, TV and movie. So I was a huge fan and I spent a billion hours in front. Of of the television set as a kid, you know, watching everything. So, But again, it wasn't until way deep into my 20s that it even started occurring to me that, wow, I would really love to do that. Mm -hmm. So I took the safe route. Uh, Even, you know, when I graduated from NYU, you know, and I had this journalism background, uh, I had been working as a doorman uh, at night. That's how I put myself through college. And um, I had a teacher who encouraged me to pursue journalism as a career. And it turned out I I was making more money as a doorman than I would have made at a starting job in journalism and I said well this is bullshit I want to make a lot of money so I went to law school you know, also, you know the safer not particularly interested in the law but I thought oh I'll make a lot of money lawyers make a lot of money that was like one of the only two jobs that I knew where people made money right. doctor and lawyer so I said, I'll do that so went to law school hated it graduated worked for a firm hated that and it wasn't until I was in my very late 20s 28, 29 that I really just had to do the soul searching and say what do you want to do when you get up in the morning how do you want to spend your day and the deep dark secret for me was that I wanted to be a writer I had never written a script before I just knew I could do it. I just knew it. And once I was able to say that out loud, I just said, you know what? I've got to go for this because it's, I don't want to be one of these guys on my deathbed going, I wonder what would have happened if I would have gone to L.A. and tried this. And I said, I'm going. So I just said, I'm moving to L.A. People thought I lost my fucking mind. <laughs> They're like, all right, wait a At 30 years old? Yeah, you go to automotive high school. You graduate from that. you manage to get into NYU. You graduate from there. You go to law school. You pass the bar. You're on partnership track in a major New York law firm. You're going to quit this, to move to Los Angeles, where you've never been before, to write scripts, which you've never done before. This is a really fucked up plan. I said, you know what? I know it sounds like that. I know I'm doing the right thing. I am absolutely going to make this work. And they said, well, I, I, you'll be back in six months. I said, I don't think so. And that was, you know... 1990, yeah. 1989.
1: That's, so, wild. Yeah. that's it, I think that's a, an interesting moment to kind of dig into, because, I mean, that's the stuff that our listeners, that's where
0: they are. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah was, they're, sure. They're looking to make that decision to right. move from wherever they are. Well, to listen, I, there is a great deal to be said about taking yourself out of your comfort zone. I will say that. Mm-hmm. Um, moving to L.A. Was, was a jolt of electricity for me, because suddenly... Uh, I would wake up in the morning, and the first thought when I would look around was go, "Where the fuck am I? Oh my god, I'm in Los Angeles. What am I doing in Los Angeles? I'm supposed to make my writing career happen. Holy shit! What am I got? Oh my god, I got to go!" And, and it was this panic, as opposed to waking up in New York, where it was familiar, and all my friends were there, Absolutely. and hey, we're going to the Yankee game, and okay, well, I'll write tomorrow, or I got to go out, I got to go see my family. So here, I was sort of I parachuted into a strange city where I didn't know a soul, and and I knew why I was there, and especially for me at thirty. You know, I just felt this ticking clock. I thought, I kept thinking, I should have been out here when I was 22. I should have gotten out of here as soon as I graduated from college where I wasted all this time. So there was an urgency and there was a real sense of, I gotta make this happen. And failure was not an option. And I just said, all right, I'm gonna live like a monk. For the next till till I make this happen, and I got to share in an apartment with a couple of other guys who were also interested in writers, mm-hmm. being writers. Did you know them coming out to No, know I didn't know. Them? I did not know Saul. I did yeah, not know Saul. I just showed up, got a, a cheap hotel room uh, in MacArthur Park. Uh, it was so cl- such a cliche. I had this horrible <laughs> hotel room. So called the Park Plaza Hotel, which is interesting because that was the name of the deli that I worked in in Brooklyn. Was the Park Plaza Lair. Deli. <laughs> so I said, this is you know this is meant to be. It wasn't meant to be. It was a <laughs> no. shitty like SRO hotel. Like literally. He was, like, screaming in the middle of the night. And my room had a view of the Hollywood sign. I said, if I wrote this in a script, I'd say, like, oh, oh come on. God. This is so cheesy. Yep. It's like, really? <laughs> so here I'm looking at the Hollywood sign. I'm there. It's the first night in town. And, you know, and I just sort of hit the ground running. I got the, uh, at the time, the, the, the local classified paper was the recycler. Mm-hmm. When actually you used to have to look in a paper for ads for yeah. stuff. Found, you know, sharing an apartment. I just said, I'm going to, I'm again, I just need a, a bed. I need, now I need to get a job. I got a job. I actually took my law degree off of my resume and got a job as a paralegal because I just wanted a nine-to-five job so I could come home and write it. Sure. night. Got that, came home, and then I was like, okay, I'm going to start writing scripts. So I started writing sitcom scripts. Um, How did you even know... What they looked like, what to do. I mean, this was. Pre- I did internet. it. Yeah, I did it. I, I, well, I, first I, I needed to know if I was funny. I, I thought I was, <laughs> and I was like, you know, I. You I, like sitcoms. Loved I love sitcoms. Yeah, I love the Honeymooners, my all-time favorite show. Mm-hmm. Loved, you know, All in the Family, F. Troop, The Munsters. I mean, I grew up watching all these 1960 sitcoms, yeah. which again was like graduate school for me. You know, so when I think back now, when my mother used to say, "What are you watching this?" Show? How important that stuff was more important as it turned out than physics, you know, for me. Because sure. this is like, you know, people badmouth TV. I always go, you know what? TV paid for my house. TV is putting my children through college. TV's not so bad. Yeah. You know, TV can be your friend, you know. Well, it's interesting,
1: so. too. Those 60s sitcoms, just uh, by nature, they were doing like.
0: 40 episodes, 50 40 episodes. 40 episodes, yeah. And, you know, it's and great, they too. they all the same. same. All the same. And, you know, and it's funny, too. I've now since become a fan of old-time radio, like the radio shows from the 30s and 40s and 50s. Really? Jack Benny. It's That's where all the sitcoms come from. And those radio shows come from vaudeville. There are some routines from right. vaudeville that you will see on TV on today that are just tried-and-true situational comedy routines. But for me, you know, I thought, I, I could not imagine writing a movie. I had no idea how you could sustain a story over two hours. Even a one-hour story, I couldn't, but a 22-minute thing, I said, all right, I can do this. (laughs) Backing up, the question, am I funny? I thought I was. My friends laughed at me, my family. But there's something, you know, Billy Crystal called, you know, I forget, Mr. Saturday Night. Oh, they're talking about being a comedian. And mm-hmm. he said to his brother, you have living room balls. You'll stand up in your living room and do something, but you go do it on a stage. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? The quickest way to find out if you're funny, write material, go perform it. If you can make the audience laugh, there's your answer. So I did stand up for a while. I did, you know, for like oh, three or God. four months in New York before I moved to L.A., I did like the open mic circuit, comic strip, catcher rising star. And it worked. Oh, yeah. I had no interest in being a comedian. Right. I, it's such a a life that I, I could <laughs> I two in the morning you get on there's six people left if you're lucky and they're they're burnt out and everything. But but it worked. I wrote some stuff, it worked, they left. I went, okay, oh. I'm confident I can do this. Moved to LA, uh there were in LA there are People literally on the street that will sell scripts, produce scripts of shows. So I bought a That's few good. of those. I bought Sid Field's book screenplay, mm-hmm. which was you know so amazingly enlightening. I never thought about movies in terms of how do they, how do you structure a story. So you know you read the screenplay book and it goes generally on page thirty in a movie it's the first plot point where the character is taken into a completely new direction. On in Rocky on page thirty, right. would you like to fight Apollo Creed? And I went, holy shit. Yeah, and then I think of other movies, and I like, oh, this oh, yeah, and then it twists into, oh, I get it, and starting to then figure out, breaking the code. But it's I, funny. I mean, you must have just in in watching movies and being a fan of movies and TV
1: internalized this stuff. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So to see a name yeah,
0: and now that you now that I now that I sat down and thought about it, I go, oh, okay. And what so then? What I started to do with sitcoms where I would I would videotape and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm dating myself. This is 1990, 1991, nineteen ninety one. I'd videotape an episode of something. I'd play it back. I'd watch a scene. I'd write down what happened in the scene. Watch okay. the next scene. Write down. And I would create an outline in reverse. I would go, oh. Home Improvement. Every time they come back from the commercial, he talks to the guy over the backyard fence. I see how this... Thing, I got the rhythms of it. I said, this is how this particular show is structured. And then I would, you know, jump in. So I... uh I wrote a Doogie Howser spec script. That was the first thing I ever wrote. That's that's unusual, uh, though. Well, it was unusual. Typical of what was on it. It wasn't. It was unusual. It was by design. Um, A relative in Brooklyn knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who worked on Doogie Howser. So I thought, well, this is great. I'll write a Doogie Howser spec. I'll get it to that guy. He'll get it to David E. Kelly. I'll be working on Doogie Howser in a matter of weeks. (laughs) that did not happen uh, I wrote it you know uh, nothing ever came of it except you you know, remember, I had a spec. how was it writing that first script it was scary um, because this a, was a, it a hard comedy show either no 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 it was, yeah, it was interesting it was a little yeah it was a dr- dr- dramedy I guess yeah. you'd call it it was terrifying because I um, all the I had already moved to LA I already made my declaration to the world that this is what I was going to yeah. do and I was going to knock it out of the park and I wasn't coming back and everything else and I really didn't know I knew in my heart but I didn't I, now I had to do it I had to now walk the talk so I had to sit down and start writing And I had a um, you know a very early version of some Microsoft Word program <laughs> I didn't have a script program yet and, uh, and I plunged in and you know uh, uh, yeah it was a lot of a lot of trepidation of writing those that dialogue and going you know reading it back and going yeah I think this actually works. This is pretty right. funny. I think it feels like the show to me and, and I got good reactions from it. And then I wrote a um a Cheers script and then I wrote a Seinfeld and then I wrote a Mad About You and I just started writing a home improvement. I did all those things and all the while trying to then say, Okay, I know I have to get an agent now. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? And of course that's the catch twenty-two of every writer's right. existence is you can't get a job without an agent and you can't get an agent without a job. So I went down to the Writers Guild, where they also have copies of produced scripts that you can read. You can't oh, photocopy true. them, but yeah. you can you can read them and at least see what the formats are and stuff. So I'd go down there, and and you know, I, and I started also cold calling agents. I got mm-hmm. at the time they had the Hollywood Creative Directory mm-hmm. and the Hollywood Agents Directory. So I just you know, I, I said you know, I knew initially, and this is still true today. 50% of this is talent and 50% is you got to get yourself out there and you know without being a, a nudge or without being a pain in the ass you've got to a, assertively get people's attention and say will you read my script will you talk to me so for me too it's like because I knew nobody and I, I didn't even know how Hollywood worked I literally I, in the Hollywood creative directory on page one there was a company called Adam Productions and it was John Ritter and his partner Bob Myman who's now a huge entertainment attorney and ha- was an attorney at the time but he he and John were producing partners. Mm -hmm. Delivered page one. So I wrote a letter to Bob Myman and said, Hi, my name's Terry Winter. I'm new in town. Could I come in and meet you and pick your brain for five minutes? And, you know, I did this 50 letters all over town. See what happens. I get a call one day, Bob Myman, yeah, you know, come on, I got your letter. You want to come in? Sure, you know, come meet me. And uh, so I show up in a suit and tie and first thing (laughs) he says is first lesson, lose the suit and tie. You want to be a writer? khaki pants and a college are <laughs> right. fine. Good information. You know, I, I don't what do I know, right? Sat down and just oh you know, just God. again, they start like, how does this work and how do you get on a show and you just started to learn and meet people and, and all this other stuff. So same thing with agents. I would get an agent on the phone, hey my name's Terry Winter, I just came out from LA, from New York rather to LA, uh, I have some sitcoms can you know here's my background, where you were yeah sure, send it to me couple of weeks go by, follow up. Who are you again? Like if we talked a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, you know, I talked to about 100 people a day. You know, okay. So it's just enormously frustrating. It's like how do you get to the level where, you know, an agent will take you on? I mean, but it's, it's, also, you know, it's sort of like if you think of a real estate agent, you've got, um, you know, you have the opportunity to, to you know, represent, you know, a, a you know, beautiful mansion in Beverly Hills, or some, you know, little shack in a neighborhood that people don't really know about. Where do you want to spend your time? There's only so many hours in a day. Where do you think you have your best shot? Yeah, I'll take the Beverly Hills thing as opposed to investing time trying to sell this other thing. So that's what a new writer is like for an agent. Yeah. So, you know, I finally, it was, it was getting so frustrating because I was, everybody's reading my stuff and saying, yeah, it's really, really talented. But you got to get an agent. And and how long was this going this on? This was, was now you know, two, this two years, two straight wow. years you know, of, of writing and, 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 and back and forth, back and forth. So finally, I you know, went down to the Guild, and they had a list of agents that would take unsolicited <laughs> scripts. Normally, if you send a script to an agency, it's going to come back in the mail, with envelope unopened. We don't take unsolicited scripts. This is pure coincidence. On this list of agents is a guy I went to law school with, who I have not spoken to in years. Call him up. I said, are you... An agent now? What are you doing? He said, no, I'm actually a real estate attorney, but I use my fee uh, – a client wrote a book on real estate. I use my fee to get bonded as an agent. I don't know anything about being an agent. I said, well, guess what? You're my, <laughs> you're my agent. I'm going to create oh, an agency. God. You're going to be the head of it. I'm going to get letterhead, voicemail, phone, the whole bit. I'm going to do everything. I'm going to submit my work under your letterhead so people will at least say it came in through an agent. And then oh. if I get anything, I give you 10%. Talk about <laughs> another con. Uh, yeah, totally, which is this where it all... <laughs> That's fantastic. All the, yeah, the, the staying stuff finally paid off. So I create this agency. I take a day off from my paralegal job. I hit every sitcom office in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. At the time, this is now we're talking 92, 92. There was like 28 sitcoms on the air. <laughs> this is the era of... Uh, T- TGIF or whatever yeah. or uh, you know full house yep. you know family managers everything from Frasier to that yeah. so there's a million opportunities so I would go in and i just say hey this is from the agency here's those scripts you wanted and I'd give it to whoever's sitting behind the desk and suddenly my scripts were in a building where people theoretically could hire me and I said All right, this is at least you know, I'm I'm doing it. And I had this deal I made with myself too. I would not go to sleep at night until I did something that day to further my writing career. And that would be... Did you write a scene today? Mm-hmm. Did you talk to an agent today? Did you send out a letter? Did you mail a script? If the answer is no, I'd get my ass out of bed and do something. So i go to bed and say, okay, you're an inch closer to making this happen. Sure. And it was a, you got to keep right. keep going because time will slip away. It's the enemy. That clock is, and it's so easy to procrastinate. As you know, you know, sometimes the hardest thing in the world, you, I'd come home from my job. At the end of the day, I'd be exhausted. The the hardest thing to do is to push that button on the fucking computer and go. I'm I'm going in. I'm writing because it's solitary and it's lonely and it's you against a blank computer screen and it sucks. It's it's hard. It's really hard. There's a reason why people in this business get paid a lot of money and a lot of people. You know, it's it, it's really hard to do. So anyway, well, let me dig let me into that for a second. I yeah, mean, you were working with this paralegal job. Yeah, and finding time to write. At night? Yeah, that's all. Yeah, at that's night. Crazy. I totally. Again, uh, my friends came out. Actually, those two guys in that picture actually <laughs> came out. Those are my two best friends, Bobby Canzanari and Chris Caldivino. Chris is an actor, actually on Boardwalk Empire, plays Tonino. <laughs> Bobby uh, is a school teacher. They came out and lived lived in L. A. You know, too. They followed me out to L. A. for a couple years. And you know, they would even say like, "Hey, Bobby," say, "Let's go to the you know, let's go to the Dodger game." And I'd say, "I did not come here to go to the fucking Dodger game. I came wow. here to write. I'm not. I'm not." doing anything but writing. So until I make it as a writer, I'll go to the Dodger game all the time with you, but until I get hired on a TV show, I'm not leaving this apartment. And I mean, I I left the apartment. I did have (laughs) a life, but for the most part, it was very mercenary. It was like guys... I'm 31 years old now. i got to make this happen. Yeah. you know. So I was really, really digging in. It. Well, it's a city that's easy to come to and kind of float and oh, like yeah, yeah. forget what you're doing there. And the other thing, too, I mean, and one of the things, one of the early mistakes I made, the very early mistake, before the before I even got the paralegal job, that wasn't for three months. The first job I took, the very first job I took, was as director of business affairs for a small straight-to-video company. Cool. So I was an attorney. So I, I was the yeah. in-house attorney there doing contracts and stuff. And the, the way I... I fooled myself. I said, Well, oh, well, I work for an entertainment company I'm in the business. And what I was realizing, I was working 12 hour days, and I'd come home at night and I didn't have time to write. And I said, well, you came out here to be a writer, not an entertainment attorney. So the idea that you think you're in the business because you're working for a company, if you want to be a writer, you're not writing. Yeah. So, and I've given this advice to writers a million times. They say, well, should I get a job as a production assistant or a writer assistant? I said, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to get you any closer to being a writer. Just because you're standing on a set with a walkie-talkie and you're among the actors and everything, it feels like, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm in Hollywood. Yeah. If that's what you want to do, great. But if you want to be a writer, go get a job. Uh, a mindless, the most mindless job in the world that can protect your brain. Yeah. Go, you know, whatever that means—waiter or ticket taker at a movie theater, or whatever. Whatever can pay your bills and keep your brain relaxed enough when you get home at night. You can write, and write. it's better that you're doing that and say than to say, "Oh well, I'm, I'm working 15 hours a day as a PA." You're in the business, but you're not in the business the way you want to be. Right. So, anyway, so getting back to the um, yeah. the agency. You know, I, I threw, I got my scripts all over town, and uh, a couple of weeks later, uh, I got a call on the answering machine from the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and they said, "Yeah, we're calling about Terry Winters' uh, script, your client, and you know, we'd maybe like to have him in to pitch some ideas." So I was like, "Holy shit!" So I called my friend in New York, who is the attorney, and it was a Friday afternoon. He was already gone for the weekend, so I said, "Great, now I have to wait till Monday." Then I realized, you know, he doesn't really know anything about being an agent. So I could just call and say I'm him, you know. And So I cut out the, the yes. middleman. So I called up. I said, yeah, hey, you know, it's Terry's agent. How you doing? Good, good. So I have no idea what agents say or don't say, but I'm just totally winging it. So they said, yeah, we'd like to have Terry in the pitch some scripts. Does he have... um so you have, like, one more teenage-oriented script that we can see. Because, you know, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is kind of teenage. teenager. I said, yeah, he's got a great Wonder Years episode, which I did not have. And this was a Friday night. Yeah. They, at that point, <laughs> had everything I had written. So I said, let me... I think I can get it to you by, like, Tuesday. I'm like, kind of doing the math in my head. How long is it going to take me to write this thing? <laughs> so I hung up. And from Friday until Tuesday afternoon, I just cranked out a Wonder Years script. I, I, first thing I had to do is I went down to the guy who sells scripts. I found mm-hmm. the Wonder Years. Okay, this is the format. This is how they do it. And then I went home... And and just banged one out Wow And Tuesday I headed back to the office Gave it to them They called me back They had me into pitch ideas I actually sold them On an idea um, This was for a freelance Freelance Yeah okay. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air when they, back, back when they used to do freelance Yeah Prince. yeah Back when that was a, a thing <laughs> and um, I sold them on an idea that they liked a lot it involved Will's character getting into, into a fight with a guy at a restaurant because he was trying to impress his girlfriend and then of course she wasn't impressed and it was sort of they liked it a lot and then ultimately NBC c- killed it they were like you know we just don't want to get in any kind of violent thing but it's funny I was even writing violence back <laughs> <laughs> then it's like the story was a guy punches another guy right. in the face I was like this is great but it was it was my first foot in the door and it was actually Absolutely. two of the people in that room when I pitched ended up hiring me a couple years. Years later on Sister Sister. It was Des- you know uh, David Simon and Leslie Ray. And they said to me, You, you almost got hired on Fresh Prince that day. We, wow. we literally, you walked out of the room and we, we said, Let's grab this guy, let's hire him. We just didn't have it in the budget. So I didn't even know. It was, okay. My career would have started a year earlier had they had money in the budget and I just did not have you know
1: were you uh, did you even know I mean you must not have known what what a pinch is supposed to look like what you were supposed to do in that meeting y-
0: y- you know a little I mean I read whatever I could I bought every book on TV mm-hmm. writing there was a uh, a terrific book by um, Carl Sauter I believe his name is uh, I think it's just called how to sell your TV script to Hollywood or something. He was one of the writers on Moonlighting. And it was, it was one of the best books I've read. It was just real-life uh, examples of what you should do, what you should not. I'm sure I took a lot of advice out of that book about what, what to expect, how to do it. There is a, uh, a website right now called wordplayer.com that is run by uh, Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio. Mm-hmm the best advice for writers i've ever read they do it there's a section on this website called columns i think it's called and it's it's about 25 or 30 different little very readable articles about every aspect of writing by two guys who are t- at the top of their game incredible writers and it's everything from do i need to live in la what should i title my script dialogue <coughs> subtext what happens at a pitch meeting you know and that that's what I think so many young writers just want to know. I mean, when I want to talk at colleges. I mean, people ask me like, "What is your day like? You know, yeah. When you get to work, what happens?" And you <laughs> just—they don't know—and—and and, and not to take anything away from the faculty of, of film schools or TV schools, but a lot of the faculty are made up by people who don't really have a lot of real-world experience because if Sorry. if they did, they wouldn't be teaching. They'd be doing that. So it, it, the, the, a lot of times students don't have access to people who are really in the trenches every really day doing it. So this site particularly gives you incredible information about, again, just real-world How does this work when you go to pitch a story? What do I do? What do I say? What do I not say? That sort of stuff. So Mm -hmm. very helpful. So anyway, Fresh Prince didn't work out. Uh, A couple of months later, I was lucky enough to get into the Warner Brothers Sitcom Writers Workshop. Oh, that's right. And Warner Brothers runs this. They still run it. It's sitcom. They also now have a drama writers Mm -hmm. workshop. At the time I was in it, they took about 15 people from around the country uh, put you through a 10 week program at the end of that program you would uh, uh, hopefully be placed on one of their shows mm-hmm. so I was in the sitcom program so at the end of it I wrote, I wrote a script during the uh, course that I wrote a Frasier script uh, at the end of it they called me in and they said we have an interesting situation we have a show we think you'd be great for it's not a sitcom and I said, okay. They said, well, that's no reflection on your <laughs> comedy writing ability, but it's about a blue-collar guy who goes to work as a lawyer for a really stuffy law firm. Oh, Do you think you can write this? <laughs> I said, if I can't write it, and I don't get this job, I'm, I'm moving to Tibet. Right. I, mean, I don't know what the... F- this is obviously has to be my job, right? So, And it was. It was called The Great Defender. It was on Fox uh, in 1994. Uh, unfortunately, it, it, but as we were producing a show, there was a regime change at Fox. And this show, our show, which was actually... Actually, great, really good, and and got phenomenal reviews. They put us on TV at seven o'clock on Sunday nights. Whose show was that? It was it was, uh, it was re- created by uh, George Skank, Frank Cardia, mm-hmm. uh, and Frank Rizzulli, who Frank later went on the Sopranos. George is, yeah. George and Frank had had a show called Crazy Like a Fox. Uh, they're on. They've been on NCIS for yeah, the I last twenty games. years. They're great guys, yeah. terrific writers. And friend Frank Rizzulli, was you know an amazing writer and one of the funniest people I've ever met. So anyway, those. They three created this show. Um, unfortunately, you know, we got the death slot on Sunday nights. The show we only did eight episodes and, and we were out, but we were recovered. That was my first job and hmm. that was my entree. So I that followed, gives you the credit. And yeah, credit, that and that going. suddenly, yeah. So for me, you know, like charting a career path, I, I, I didn't even, I didn't know anything about that. I didn't think about it. All my standards for taking a writing job were: you had to ask me. And if you asked me, I would say yes. So if you said, "Do you want to write on the New Adventures of Flipper?" Yes, of course I do. Because I say, "You're going to pay me how much?" And I'm in the Writers Guild, and I don't have to be a lawyer. Shit, yeah, I'll do. Of course. You know, I wasn't like going. Uh, I don't know if that's for me. I'd rather. I'm going to sit out and wait until I get a better offer. So I went on. You know, the Cos- I followed Georgia Frank onto the Cosby Mysteries. Mm-hmm. Then I did the New Adventures of Flipper. I did Xena Warrior Princess. I was like, oh, if you look at my early resume, you go. What's going on? Looking at that was fascinating. Yeah, uh, because I I think it's a thing you don't often see,
1: especially now from kind of from showrunners of of prestige shows, especially. But they kind of did
0: what they did. You're just looking at the resume of a guy who wanted to pay his rent. Yeah, you know, I I wasn't I didn't look down my nose at any of those shows. I these were these were writers writing jobs, and I you know I didn't realize in reverse how people looked at it. I didn't. I thought, hey, I'm a writer. I can write anything. I can write NYPD Blue. I can write Sister Sister uh I, you know but people don't look at that they look at your resume and go oh, well, you know, I guess this is that. You started this interview by saying you're the, you're the crime <laughs> guy. And yeah, you're right. That's how now the perception is. That, but I very well could go out and write a romantic comedy tomorrow yeah. or a musical. Well, you know, like, I mean, I mean, it's, but people, yeah. that's human nature. And you go, this is what you do. This is what you get. No, this is your brand. Yeah. You know, the science fiction guy, the this guy, right. the that guy. The eight, I've seen uh, you know uh, dozens of writers who were 8 o'clock sitcom writers <laughs> who got wiped out When the 8 o'clock sitcom died and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire came in, all the writers from Full House... Family Matters, all those types of shows, suddenly were dinosaurs because people go, well, that's what you do, and they go, well, I can write Frasier too. Go, well, I don't know. You've been writing for the Olsen Twins for the last, and it was so not fair. And I started to figure out early on, you better diversify. Mm-hmm. You better show that you can write this and you can write that, and you can write dark and you can write light, because when the pendulum swings and it always does, you're going to be needing to get a job in another genre. And uh, you know, friend, friend of mine, Leonard Dick who's now you know uh, executive producer of um the good wife mm-hmm. uh, was on sister sister with me and sure. yeah the two of us That's talked great. about it and actually i think uh george george writing Skank and Cardia had asked me they they, they wanted they some recommendations for a uh, show they were doing and I said well you know what? this guy's really looking to break into one hour he's a great guy great writer and that, I think was Leonard's first hour drama so it was the same same philosophy we had yeah.
1: I think it's it's usually writers I mean I think most of us see Writing is writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're telling the story. You may be telling yeah. it in different modes. Right. And it's, it's these sort
0: of outside forces that want to steer yeah. You into I mean, different- yeah. It's just human nature to want to look at a, yeah. s- a set of facts and then pigeonhole you and say, "Oh, this is what you do. This is what." And you have to, as a writer force people to look at you in a different way. Yeah. You know, and so if you if I want you to suddenly change the perception of me, I will have to write something completely different. And then you go, oh, okay, wow, I guess you can I guess you can do that too. Yeah. And that's it, it takes some work. But you know, there's also something to be said for yeah, you do have a brand and you know, mm-hmm. for actors they get typecast, you know, and okay, well, you know, I, I remember asking, you know, um, you know, one of the actors on the Sopranos uh, Tony Sirico. You know, we were talking about acting. I said, is there any other thing you want to play? Is there anything you would die in a play? Huh. And you're like, you know, a dah, he goes, I play cops, I play wise guys. <laughs> Those are the songs I sing. I sing them really well and that's all I want to do. And I said, you know what? Good for you. That's that's good. great. He, that's what he's comfortable with. That's what he's good at and that's what he does. That's so, funny. Yeah.
1: Um, going from these uh, shows, I mean Sister Sister, Flipper, this must have been a huge learning experience for you. you must You must have learned Everything
0: there is to learn in those. Yeah, you know, well, five I mean, I, I learned about myself too. I learned, you know, uh, it's really it, is, it does help to be connected to the material. I mean, <laughs> if you have the luxury of being able to say, I don't think I'm, I don't think that job's for me, that's great. Um, yeah, I had some dark moments writing Flipper where I go, I don't <laughs> know what a dolphin expert would say here. <laughs> Zena, also, I. I the fantasy world is not my thing. You know, I just, that's not what I do. I write more grounded, uh, real life situations that tend toward, you know, crime stuff. I like that. I, I probably could write a cop show, I'm assuming. And, you know, it's just things I'm not necessarily interested in. I'm more interested in, in you know, the dynamics of human behavior and human interaction and again I I would marvel I mean we had you know RJ Stewart, Stephen Sears, the guys who were writing Xena, I would read their stuff, Oh my God, this is great. I have no idea how to do this. Wow. You know, and I it was really true. It was a struggle. It was a struggle. It was so tough. And I mean it was it was a lot of you know a lot of hair pulling when back when I had hair and uh yeah it was just not easy you know as opposed to you know when I started writing Sopranos it just it came Mm -hmm. so much more naturally to me and I felt like oh god this is my real voice I'm speaking here in my real voice as opposed to you know what Zena might say or might not say
1: yeah Yeah, I mean I think a a lot of us especially early on find ourselves in those jobs because yeah yeah you do just want the job yeah Um, yeah say no let's, let's take that apart for a minute um were these
0: traditionally run rooms, uh, Flipper and Zena? Some of the ones that. Well, Zena, I was I was a diff- freelancer, but I would I would meet with RJ and his his internal writing staff. Uh, Flipper, yeah, it was me, Allison Adler, Ernie Wallengren um, yeah, a couple other writers. Uh, yeah, we'd meet, we'd talk, you know, so you mm-hmm. know, sort of sit around the table and you know, throw ideas around. And they were functional rooms that you could kind of lean on each other if you yeah, oh, had trouble with this aspect. Absolutely, so yeah. Right. And then the, in the sitcom world. You know, great to the Same thing It was me, Frank Cardia, George, uh, Frank Ranzuli, Bill Schmidt was on the show for a while. Um, you know, we had some. You know, it was a, it was a good, fun room. Or mm-hmm. a lot of. You know, it was good. I mean, I, I learned how a room should function. Mm-hmm. It's got to be open. It's got to be uh, a safe place for you to say anything without being judged and being made to feel foolish. I mean, so much of this is. Uh, opening up your veins and letting it spill on the table in front of other people. I always say to writers here you know, writing staffs it's got to be like a therapist's office mm-hmm. because what I'm what I'm hoping we're writing about the deep dark secrets of these characters who are really not necessarily nice people sometimes so what I'm going to want from you is tell me your nightmares, your dreams, the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you, some ugly stuff. What's the worst thing you ever did to somebody? Tell me about some horrible relationships, breakups, hmm. stuff you've stolen, things you've done, you know, bad, you know, bad shit. You know, without hearing a story and go, you know, you spill your guts, and you go, holy shit, Ben, what are you fucking crazy? You know, and then you go, God, I'm never going to say anything again. Right. It's got to be like, you know, it doesn't leave the room. There's no judgments and okay, because we're going to take this stuff and turn it into TV st- episodes, you know? So a lot of what you see on Boardwalk Empire or The Sopranos or any show is, that happened to me, you know? This was something I did, or a version of it, a twisted mm-hmm. version it really of it. Something that started it. with something that happened to me, you know, and that's what, you know, and if, you, if, you, if you're not willing to do that as a writer, you know, it, you're not going to help the room. First night at the Warner Brothers sitcom writers' workshop, they went around the room and they said, tell us that something embarrassing about yourself and you could say, you could tell in 30 seconds you'd say that guy's not going to make it that guy mm-hmm. one guy says well i, I buy lottery tickets i remembered and I went <laughs> that's the most embarrassing thing you can come up with you know i mean you're you're obviously not connected with yourself and you're not willing to share mm-hmm. as opposed to some other stuff that was like you know really you know interesting was it
1: was it easy for you to be honest on the page to do have that kind of honesty that you know is expected in the room to have on the page as well to make the emotional uh, core of a scene
0: real yeah i didn 't get to be completely honest until the sopranos though you know I mean, network t v was there <laughs> right. wasn 't a lot you could share you know i mean you don 't want to hear <clears throat> the dark stuff, but sopranos was like unfiltered I mean stuff that you know i couldn 't believe some of the stuff that was being typed on the page and Uh, You know, and we were shooting it. We were doing it. I mean, some real. I mean, I remember we were talking one year. It was in season three. We were doing an episode when uh, it was basically the juxtaposition between two young women Mm -hmm. Tony's daughter, who was having quote unquote problems at college, and a young stripper who ends up getting beaten to death Mm -hmm. by Ralphie. And we needed something again, quote-unquote, horrific to happen to Meadow, something she witnessed on the street that was such a trauma to her, something she witnessed on the streets of New York. So I said, well, I was on the subway once, and I, there was a homeless woman sitting across me with all of her bags, and she had a, uh, a skirt fashioned out of a garbage bag, a big black garbage bag. And uh, she got up, and the garbage bag fell off, and she was naked, and she had uh, a crumpled newspaper stuffed up the crack of her ass. And she grabbed all her stuff, and there was another guy sitting across from me, and we just exchanged looks. And she got off the train, and that was it. So David Chase said, "Great, we're do- we'll do that." And I said, "You're not, you're not serious." He said, "Yes, no, that's perfect. Let's do that." And we did it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "This is what I'm talking about. This is—it's real. It's dark. It comes from life. And you know, when you actually are writing this, you're going." Wow, this is this is real, you know, and it was real, you know. Uh, let's talk about that Sopranos room. Was this? Yeah. You, did you come in in the second season? Season two, or? yeah. Uh, I start I got a freelance script. Okay. I, I as soon as I read the pilot, or watched the pilot rather. I uh, I don't even know that I finished watching it, and I was on the phone to my agent. No I said, "You got to get me on this <laughs> show." My second call was to Frank Rizzoli. Uh, who would create a great defender. And I said, have you seen this thing? And Frank has a, a similar background. He grew up in Boston. And I knew this would be, like, right in his wheelhouse. He goes, yeah, I'm actually meeting with David Chase on Friday. Oh, I said, you've got to get me in there with you. Frank Do you was remember at, where you were at the time, what you was, were working on at the time? Uh, I was on the PJs. Okay. And, uh, so
1: this is, a, this is a potentially
0: big move. Oh, no, you know, at say. this point, I'm sorry, at this point it was a year earlier. I didn't get the job, so I was on the PJs. I, this, I must went. have been on... Maybe it was Sister Sister in, or the rest half a half-hour comedy. Yeah. So, Frank was way ahead of me in terms of uh, title and career and stuff, so he was he was like at the supervising producer level. So he meets with David uh, on a Friday and Frank turned out to be the last person David hired for the first year staff. So, I was so bummed. I said, oh, shit, I can't believe it. So every day Frank would come home from the writer's room in season one and he'd tell me about it. He was sending me scenes. I was actually editing his scenes on Sopranos, reading, helping him, giving him suggestions, back and forth. So I was kind of on the staff yeah. anyway, not really, but, you know, <laughs> helping. And and I couldn't believe what I was reading. I mean, and, and for Frank, you know, he, he's such an interesting guy and so funny. And for the for, and the and the, the thing with him was everything he had written before – the characters he was writing about were not nearly as interesting as the real person. So his writing was always kind of a letdown because the real guy was so much more interesting yeah. than the characters he was writing about. Because Finally, he was in network stuff. Yeah, and I go, he the real push. you could channel his real voice. It's ten yeah. times funnier than the stuff he's allowed to write. Finally, now he's on Sopranos, and this is pure wow. Frank Ranzulli, That's pure cool. David Chase. And you go, this is unbelievable. This stuff is like was uh, really incredible blow me away so season one ends up happening David very early on got rid of everybody on the writing staff except Frank Rizzoli Robin Green and Mitch Burgess so the season ends season two comes Frank has been pitching me to David all year uh, he's, I wrote a script called Brooklyn Rules which is a movie um, that ended up getting made so it had sort of a mob component so I said well this will be a good writing sample for David Frank gets it to David David hates it I'm like I can't believe this. So oh, Frank. Did, did you ever get to ask him what he didn't like about it, or did Frank know? He, I, I'm sure, I probably avoided knowing because yeah. he'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure, and I, you know it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> matter. Well, I know you didn't like yeah. it, but Frank said, "David, look, I'm telling you, this guy can write the show. You got to trust me. I know he can do it." Mm. And I don't know if he knew I could do it or not. If he was just being a good friend, but David said, "Okay, fine, I trust That's your huge. judgment." So yeah, it was, it was a, a career making you know uh plug i met david we talked about uh the episode that became big girls don't cry we uh, Christopher takes acting lessons. And as, as it happened, as I was starting my writing career, somebody told me, you should take acting lessons. Not, not to be an actor, but you should yeah. see what the process is like. So I actually had done exactly that. So I said, God, I've actually been to that class. So we talked about the stories. And it was Furio uh, finally comes over from Italy. And Tony's not really sure if he's the right guy. And, of course, Furio turns out to be, you know, horrifically violent. So this was it. I was on the PJs and... um I knew that this freelance assignment was going to be possibly the biggest career shift in my life. That If I did this and I got hired on this show, this show, The Sopranos, was was airing its first season at this point. So they were up to like episode seven or eight on the air when I was writing the season two episode. We were already way ahead. And uh, I was getting up at four in the morning, writing my scenes, going into work at nine on PJs. And it was um, very scary because there were a couple of other writers on the PJs who were trying to leave the show to go on different jobs. So Dave Flabot was one of them. He took a different job. Alana Wernick got a job on some other show. So there were writers jumping ship from PJs because mm-hmm. it was it was you know huge staff and I knew that with each new writer leaving they were finally like shutting the door and saying nobody else is leaving so they finally got to that point I ha- handed him my script David read it he really liked it he said I want to offer you a job on the show and uh, I remember going into Larry Wilmore and um, Steve Tompkins and saying guys I got an offer you know on another show they're like no 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 you're not <laughs> leaving and I, I said well it's, I really I really do want to take it and they said well all right, what is it I said it's the Sopranos they're like no, I said, yeah. They go, all right. I remember Larry Wilmore said, well, I'm not going to be known as the asshole who prevented you from going to work <laughs> on <right>. The Sopranos. <laughs> go, and this is so funny. And this is where we're dating ourselves. He goes, you got to, you got to get me the videotapes of the first season. <laughs> So awesome. the video tastes. sure. I said, Done. I said you got it. I will get them for you, and uh, and That's then great. they let me go, and uh, and that was it. So suddenly, you know, I was there, and Todd Kessler and I um, were the new guys, and we started. We shared an office, and suddenly there we are in season two. And I, did you let me let me just ask about
1: that freelance episode? Did you approach that differently than you had written other things, knowing the pressure was on, knowing this was a show you liked?
0: Uh, No. I mean, I approached it the same way I'd approach anything else. You know, I watched, I asked them, can you give me copies of all the scripts? Can you give me the, the, you know, copies of the shows themselves? And I watched, uh, the other thing, too, was I needed to see the finale, the last episodes that hadn't aired yet. So I got to see (laughs) the last four episodes before they were on TV. I was like, holy shit, this is great. So so I knew what would happen. But, yeah, I just sort of dissected it. And, um, you know, Mm -hmm. part of what you do as a TV writer is to mimic... What's there? So mimic the tone and the style and everything. Yeah. So I just watched those episodes and I got those voices in my head, and then just jumped in and said, "Okay, this this feels like the show to me." And David agreed, apparently. And it's funny. I feel like that's a
1: thing that's kind of lost now that original specs are the thing. Yeah, where, yeah. Know, the job
0: of a staff writer, right. is To mimic well, it, that's challenging. That's honestly been you know one of the challenges here. You know, getting people who can come in and mimic the tone of this show. Yeah. And you know, it's frustrating because you know, especially as you get deeper and deeper into the seasons I say you've got 36 hours of material to refer to this is what Nucky sounds like this yeah. is what Margaret sounds like this is how Margaret never calls Nucky Nucky she calls him Enoch so when I get back a script that she's calling him Nucky I go Where, yeah. where's the disconnect here This you're is not not, these are not our characters yeah. and it's frustrating you know, it's one thing if the show's just starting and you're figuring out who people are but you know my when I people made fun of me when I got the job on Sister Sister uh, in season 5 I watched 90 episodes of Sister, Sister in a row. And then the showrunner said, are you out of your fucking mind? I was like, well, I need to know what what stories we did and what we didn't do and who these girls are. And they're like, wow, you know. So I think that was one of the good things about law school is, like, I came to Hollywood with a work ethic that didn't seem to exist in a lot of other people. I would say, sure. you know, if somebody would say to me, we, we need this script in two days— great i'm not sleeping for the next two days give it to me and i'll do it and that is a skill that really helps a lot in tv if you go well we our schedule just got completely turned around we're not shooting this we got to shoot something else we need something to shoot on monday morning okay great we'll have something don't worry yeah. you know that kind of thing well, i want to talk a little more about sopranos and sure. uh,
1: then we'll, we'll wrap up um how did that room work? I mean, there were
0: there were some heavy hitters in there, some big personalities. Yeah. Uh, how, how did the room work? How did production uh, work? David um, would come in at the beginning of the season with a pretty broad strokes arc of where he wanted the season to go for each character. Yeah, you know, I always liken it to a roadmap. map, like we're going to go from New York to L.A., and we're going to stop in Chicago, Vegas, you know, etc. those being story points along the way. And then we would just jump in, like, okay, well, episode one. You know, how do we? Where do we start? Etc. And uh, it was it was just very open. It was just uh, you know sitting around the table, and it was a lot of to the untrained eye or unfamiliar. You'd say like it's people just bullshitting, telling stories that have nothing to do with the show. Sure everything from politics to what happened to me on the subway here or one time this happened to me as a kid or da-da-da and a lot of that a lot of that a lot of that and then finally David would say what what was that thing you did oh that's hmm. interesting well what if Tony da-da-da-da-da and you know it's all part of the show that was the thing about the writers room was as much digression as much as it appears like digression it's all part of the show that's how you get to ultimately get to the show um we did a, a show in season 1 uh where nucky uh nucky's father moves out of the house that he grew up in and nucky renovates the entire thing and then ends up burning it down at the end of the house, mm-hmm. at the end of the episode my mom died in 1990 and uh you know, the, the, I was kind of embarrassed of the house I grew up in in Brooklyn. It was kind of you know, ramshackle, not really well taken care of. My dad died when I was very young. We had five kids. My mom went back to work. Our house was always a mess and was, you know, just, it used to drive me crazy. When my mom died, my siblings and I decided we wanted to sell it. And the smart thing would be to just, okay, just put it on the market as is. Psychologically, I needed to fix this house. So I single-handedly spent several months top to bottom redoing this house and then sold it and that because i needed to i didn't know it at the time but i needed to repair my childhood i needed to that was what i was doing yeah. to make it where i felt okay i'm not embarrassed of this house anymore and now mm. we can tell it nucky of course burned the house down at the end of it so it's it a, diff- <laughs> a, a different thing you and him. but that's an example of you know i told this story in the writer's room we were just talking and i said that's that's an episode that's Make that nucky in his house, you know. So that's one, an example of something that you go, "Oh, this is just this sounds like a guy just bullshitting," but it ends up being a you know things that happen in relationships, that sort of stuff. So that was very much how the Sopranos worked. Um, we would talk, talk, talk until finally David would have enough information to finally stand up and start writing on the board, and then he would generally just write out stories. In a row. It was oh, wow. amazing. I've never seen anybody... Yeah. Actually, I could do it before or since, and I can't do it myself. <laughs> but he would just get up and start writing, Beat one, two, three, four, five. A story, B story, C story. Wow. We'd have a writer's assistant come in, copy it down. We'd start to make an outline. We'd fine-tune the outline, and then one of us would go off and write the script. So it was a pretty thorough outline that yeah. came out of the room. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean- not, not crazy in-depth. I mean, mm-hmm. some of it... And it's funny, even early on, um, when... Uh, you know, when I started this show, HBO wanted to see outlines, and they saw it, and they were like, kind of, uh, you know, not, it felt like there wasn't enough there. And I said, Can I, I said, Do you remember the episode of The Sopranos when um, AJ tries to commit suicide uh, by jumping in the pool? And then Tony comes home, and he gets in, jumps in the pool with him, and pulls him out, and saves his life, and they cry together. And they go, I said, That was a really big, dramatic, poignant scene, right? Oh, yeah, it was like one of the most powerful scenes in this show. I said, Look at the outline. It says, mm-hmm. AJ attempts suicide, tragic comic. That's it, I said, so that's what I went off with, and that's what I came back with, so this is how we do it you know there's the 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 and the work is done in the writing it's not I don't think things out in the outline stage mm-hmm. a lot, you know I get an idea of what it is, and then it's your job as the writer to go figure out what that is, Yeah, structurally
1: was it it seems like it would be a difficult show, I mean. Things happened in big moves, but things also really happened in small, intimate moments.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the, so for the, you know, arguably for me, the biggest, the biggest moments were the smallest moments. You know, the little things, you know, Tony saying to Uncle Jr., don't you love me? You know, I mean, a little thing, or, you know, that sort of stuff. I mean, you know, really powerful. Very, yeah, very character-based things, right. very relationship-based sure. things. Sure.
1: Uh, and that feels like something you've taken uh, to Boardwalk as well. Yeah,
0: yeah, hopefully, yeah. Uh,
1: is there is there pushback? I mean, what's the relationship? What was it on Sopranos? What is it on Boardwalk with HBO? Extremely
0: supportive. Yeah, really supportive. Um, very, um, they're courageous, you know. They're not afraid to uh, make the audience think. Uh, none of their suggestions or notes are ever born of cowardice where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, people aren't going to like this or people will be offended. People won't understand it. You know, I think they know that you – know, they assume you're writing a show uh, for smart people. Mm-hmm. You know, I assume my audience is intelligent. I assume they know a little bit about history. They are not balancing their checkbooks while they're watching the show. They're willing to be challenged a little bit. They don't want to be spoon fed, and you know they want to be. They want to think about mm-hmm. things, and you know to have you know it's okay if you don't understand why somebody did such and such because you can talk about it and think. I I wonder why he did that, or you know even you know the ending of Sopranos is a great example. There'll be you know, people debating it. Fine, great, you know. Yeah somebody once said our art asks questions it doesn't give answers and that's what we aspire to you know we try to to do something like that but um yeah they're very um you know unlike a lot of um experiences i've had at other networks i mean they really are uh, allies in in that type of storytelling and and you know taking your time and sort of uh you know telling stories again that don't spoon feed the audience mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like you were so well-suited to join
1: the Soprano staff, you know, coming from your yeah. background and then working in the trenches and kind of getting the nuts and bolts of writing when you're working on a sitcom doing yeah. 24 episodes a year. Right. Uh, what were some of the specific challenges to that show? Uh, or was there an episode that you struggled with or that
0: The Room struggled with? Oh, God, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not... I'm trying it's been to a think while. of yeah it's been a <laughs> while but I'm like thinking god was I was I just so uh my m- remembering this is such a golden time because <laughs> it was you know it was hard you know I mean it was hard getting going you know I remember the beginnings <laughs> of the seasons were hard it was a lot we'd sit there for like a solid month or 5 weeks and not have a thing written on paper yet and you know David I mean it's funny but it became a joke after three or four because Dave would go, it's never this hard and I'd say, Yes, it's always <laughs> this hard. He goes, No it isn't. It was last year we had an outline. I said, I'm telling you we didn't and we'd have to get the writers to say, How long what what date do we have an outline for seeing, <laughs> okay. oh we we're here for six weeks and he goes, Really? I go, I'm telling you, I go, Okay, yeah. and then he calmed down. And then like a week later, he said, It's never been this hard. I say, Yes it has. and it was every year. Huh. And then by say, David, we have this conversation every year. And you know, my cheerleading style would say, Look we're not going to leave this room until we think it's great, and that's just the way it is. It's not going to. We're not going to move on until we think it's great. So cool. relax. It's we're going to sit here until we get it right, until we're all happy, and that's what I say here. I'm you know, uh, it, I mean, people are panicking. I say, guys, it's going to be great. Just relax. We're going to get it, and we always do.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting to hear that you know you. you the self-awareness that, you know, you talk about David breaking a story
0: on the board and you don't have... That's not how you do no. it. You don't have that capacity. How no. do you run your room here? Uh, well, similar in the sense of, of the openness and the talking, the digression, sure. certainly a lot of that. Once we arrive at story areas uh, and I get a very broad strokes idea of beginning, middle, and end, I go off alone and write mm-hmm. an outline and really? then I come back with an outline that we all review together and then I'll fine tune it and then somebody will go off to write the script based on that outline mm-hmm. so I just the difference is I need to go off in silence alone over the course of many hours with the, with the outline David would wait until he had it all in his head and then just right. bang it was on the board and he, right. I, I sit there in awe like literally <laughs> ten minutes later he's wrote an outline on the board but when he's putting it on the board are the other writers piping up are they doing slightly yeah okay. yeah, slightly like oh yeah, don't forget the thing you said and he would write that and change it and you know, stand back. And it was like watching uh, remember there was a guy on PBS who used to do those paintings, he got the big afro and you <laughs> could stand, stand back. right. and just like suddenly there's a paint, holy <laughs> shit, that's a sky and then he'd add the other thing and you'd see a whole story come out and go, that's, that's, that's amazing. amazing. And he, he, would literally, he would literally sometimes he'd just be laying on the couch for hours listening, 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 listening and he'd just get up and write the entire thing on the board. He'd be like, wow, that's amazing. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, why do you
1: think you need to take that that alone time, and that's that's not that's kind of unlike a TV writer because it is such a collaborative medium. Uh, I
0: don't know. It's just um, I, so I can think straight. I guess maybe I don't. I, I get distracted. I just mm-hmm. need to be. You know, even my. You know, all my offices are. I, I always face a wall when I'm writing. I don't. Really? Just, I don't listen to music. I don't look out the window. I, I have to just be alone in silence and really clear my mind of anything else. It just helps me focus. I think. I think it's really more.
1: And I assume, as the showrunner and creator, you touch every script that comes through. Yeah, you rewrite every me, script. Me, me,
0: and or Howard Quarter, okay. and a lot, a lot of it is Howard Quarter. I can't overemphasize how important Howard is to this show. He is. I truly could not do this show without him, and Tim Van Patten. Nor would sure. I want to. Uh, Howard is uh, one of the top three writers I've ever worked with. The other two are David Chase and Matt Weiner. Howard yeah. is is. Incredibly talented, um, has done the lion's share of the work here in terms of the writing, and has just you know been he he delivers a plus plus work consistently every single time. It's amazing. amazing; it is how, really amazing. How did you find him? I was aware of, of his uh, plays, uh, particularly his play Boys Life. Mm-hmm. Um, I also read a pilot he wrote called Five Points that I liked a lot, um, then coincidentally, uh, a friend of mine, director Michael Correnti, who directed Brooklyn Rules, was doing the, uh, the Buddy Cianci story. Buddy is, was the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island, who's a corrupt mayor, and Mm -hmm. he had a script written, and, um, he sent it to me to rewrite it, and I just, I wasn't available, and I said, yeah, I'm so sorry, Michael, I can't, I just can't do it. I, I see where you need the work, and it's a great story. So he goes, all right, I'm going to find somebody else. So, months later he calls me back he says can I send you the rewrite and I read it and I went this is fantastic I said this is exactly what this script should be and he goes yeah it's this guy Howard Corder and I went there's that name again then Alan Coulter who's one of our directors on Sopranos had done uh, the movie uh, the George Reeves movie uh, Hollywood and Howard Corder rewrote that and he Mm -hmm. said oh great I said I gotta meet this guy so Tim Van Hatton and I were staffing up Boardwalk we track Howard down he was in New York. Tim and I go up to the Upper West Side to meet him for coffee. Great meeting. Really liked him. Funny, fun meeting, etc. I said, Yeah, I really love you to join the staff." He goes, "Okay, great. Let me let me think about it." Yeah, great, done. He calls the next day. He goes, "Yeah, I don't think so." I said, like, "What?" He goes, "Yeah, I don't know. I just I was on. I did a show years ago, a sitcom called Kate and Alley. This is like in 1982. Oh Howard yeah. was like in high school practically." <laughs> And he, it wasn't a good experience. I said, I assure you, this will be nothing like Kate and Allie. He goes, I don't. I said, I said, this is not how this conversation is supposed to go. It's supposed to, you're supposed to say yes. He goes, well, I said, look, here's the deal. Give me six weeks. If you hate it, no harm, no foul. You can leave. If you like it, great six years later where you know whatever funny, it is yeah. yeah where he's still here and he's regretting having taken the job ever since <laughs> right. I'm sure but he's been he's been amazing sure I'm
1: having that strong support I Oh, just,
0: I, I truly I don't know what I do with that you're running a machine when you're running a show yeah, that's, yeah that's massive anonymous. yeah it's a massive it's like running a massive company
1: um, a couple of quick things, and sure. we'll, we'll get out of here. Um, Pine Barrens. Yes, that is your episode. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this is a talked-about episode. It is. We'll yeah, love yeah. this one. It is. Yeah.
0: Uh, anything you want to share with the well, listeners? It all started with Tim Van Patten. He uh, he, Todd Kessler and I were sitting at a writer's tape, the writer's table in was just bullshitting. Tim was directing, and he got off an elevator. This was during season two. And uh, he said, What are you guys doing? I said, Oh just kicking around story ideas. He goes, I had an idea for a story but it's really stupid. I said, What? He goes, Nah, it was That's a, a dream I stuff. had. <laughs> I said, Well it can't be any stupider than what we're talking about. So what is it? He goes, Well I had a dream that Pauline and Christopher got took a guy out to the woods and then they tried to kill him and they got lost. I said, That's great. I said, Why don't you go pitch it to David? He goes, No, nah, nah, I don't want it. I'm I'm embarrassed. I said, Look, if you don't I'm going in there and telling him. So he goes, Well you do it. I said, All right, I knocked on David's door. I said you gotta hear That's the story he goes great oh god we got to do that it didn't work out into season 2 mm-hmm. into the storyline but in season 3 we said okay that's going to be episode 11 whatever that is and it's interesting too because in TV you hire your directors well in advance you know there's going to be a yeah. slot for episode 11 so we, we didn't know what episode 11 was going to be yet but we knew Steve Buscemi was going to direct it mm-hmm. David was a huge fan of Tree's Lounge a movie Steve wrote and directed mm-hmm. and uh, actually a lot several Sopranos cast members had been in that movie that's what David John and Amelia, um, so being one of them, so um, it was just a coincidence that Pine Barrens happened to be the thing that Steve came in and directed, and that was how I met Steve. I knew huh. him as an actor, of course, but then he, you know, became we yeah. became friends. He, he ended up directing like three more of my episodes, I think two more certainly, um, and uh, yeah, originally it was supposed to it was written to be uh, shot in the fall, like kind of like just fall, wintry mm-hmm. weather, and. We were prepping it, I guess it was the um, winter, December into January 2001, maybe. and uh, Or was it... Two, yeah, it was 2001. And uh, as we broke for the holidays, we said, all right, as long as it doesn't snow, we'll be fine, because we're out in the middle of the woods. And there was a <laughs> fucking blizzard of, of epic proportions. <laughs> and we came back and we thought, we don't even know if we can get the trucks up there now. Wow. And But one of these we realized was, holy shit, this amps this thing up so... High. The circumstances are now so, so much better. Actually, when you see the episode with the first scene where they're marching the Russian guy into the woods, there are snowflakes falling. And I think the actor starts trying to catch snowflakes on his tongue. That was the last snowflakes falling. The snow had just stopped. As That was our first shot. And it was like, okay, just stopped. So we had pristine, blizzard-level snow up in Harriman State Park. We were out there for a week uh, shooting... the exterior scenes for a solid week and it was like being on a class trip. It was awesome. We all stayed in a hotel. We were wrapped shooting by 4.30 in the afternoon because we'd lose daylight. All the interior night scenes were shot on a soundstage in in Queens but the daytime scenes were all out there so by 4.30 everybody's back at the hotel in the bar drinking. It was awesome. We had such a good time. We We knew it was a really funny episode. We had no idea it was going to hit such a chord with people. I mean it just Well there's there's really
1: great did. character stuff in there yeah. and I feel like character stuff we hadn't necessarily seen. Right. And that looseness that you guys must have been feeling on right. the set translates to the episode. Right.
0: Too. Right.
1: Yeah, it's a testament to the director. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, let's talk for a moment about working with uh, Scorsese. Yeah. Uh, which you've done a couple times now. Right. Um, uh, tell me about collaborating. I mean, this is a cinematic icon. Dream dream
0: come true. Yeah. It, truly the reason I started in the business, uh, wanting to be in the business, Taxi Driver was the thing I saw that made me rethink movies. I uh, walked sure. out of there at 15 years old and I went, what the fuck was that? Yeah. Unlike anything I'd ever seen before, it got me interested in cinema, it got me interested in movies, who made it, why is this different than other movies. I suddenly became a fan of the guy who made it, you know, and you know, then it was Raging Bull and everything he'd done before and since, and I just studied, you know, Scorsese. To think 30 years in the future or whatever it is that I'm going to be collaborating with this guy and he's a friend of mine is just <laughs> beyond anything. So i, I finishing up on the Speranos. They call me in one day. We have this book called Boardwalk Empire. Why don't you read it see if there's a TV series in there? Uh, oh, by the way, Martin Scorsese is attached to this. <laughs> I went home, I said to my wife, I've just been handed a TV series. If I don't fuck this up, they're going to do it. He's going to be attached, you know. So they said, all right, go meet him. I met him. He's exactly what I hoped he would be. Funny, brilliant, collaborative, Mm -hmm. just really easy to talk to New York guy. We hit it off immediately. We have very similar senses of humor. make each other laugh. And, you know, just creatively, I think, you know, we're in sync. I mean, I think, you know, because I was such a fan and a student of his, I just... Felt like I knew how to write for him, absolutely. you know, and, and I just sort of got what his sensibility was. It's like doing all that homework on yeah, the sitcom. Absolutely, you know, I, go, I, I think I know how to write a Martin Scorsese movie. I think I know how to write a script that he will respond to. So originally, he was just supposed to produce. Boardwalk Empire, oh, really? but when he got my script, he said, "I think I want to direct this." Oh, so cool. I almost fell out of my chair. Cool. And he said, Damn. "How do we move this forward?" I said, "Well, if you <laughs> pick up the phone and call HBO and say what you just said to me, pretty sure this is moving forward." And he did, and it did, and we were off to the races. But yeah, it's been great. I mean, we've been, you know, obviously Wolf of Wall Street. We've got another pilot, um, oh, you know, for HBO oh, and Mick right. Jagger. This music yeah. uh, thing—that's enormous. Yeah, that's, and that's so uh, yeah, yeah, very excited about that one too. Um, so. Were
1: you were you on set for Wolf of Wall Street? Does he generally not. keep writers on set? He would,
0: he does, and he would have. But I was doing this, so sure. I w- unfortunately was only on set a couple of times. So mm-hmm. it was so it was a lot of like back and forth emails and calls and stuff. But for the most part, once once he has the script locked, you know, he's he's pretty much good. It's his set. Sure. He doesn't need anybody <laughs> making suggestions, and you know, not that he doesn't take them. He's he's open, and he says, "You see anything you want to talk to me about? Feel free." Does that film look like the script that you wrote? Absolutely, yeah, looks really? great yeah amazing that's yeah it's really yeah very very close to my first draft actually really? yeah yeah very much because his so. stuff
1: I mean you watch
0: it it feels so loose it feels so yeah. natural yeah I mean a lot of oh, there is you know a fair amount of the guys riffing in Adelaide but if you read the first draft of that script and look at the movie you go wow structurally it is sure. verbatim yeah. that's really cool well yeah. congratulations thank you that's yeah. Great.
1: Yeah. Uh, we wrap up as we always do by asking what are you watching on television uh, or what are you reading in books or watching in movies Ooh. that's getting you excited, inspired? Uh, right that you're now, talking about with your room?
0: Right now, I'm watching Mad Men because that's currently on the air, and obviously not only because it's my dear friend Matt, because you know I've been so invested in the show now for going on seven seasons now. So that's that's what I'm watching. I am watching Pawn Stars, which is my sort of veg out <laughs> go to. I got fifteen minutes to just chill, let me see what's going on with well, children. Uh, yeah, I just it's just, it it's just <laughs> so yeah, it's just so easy and it's like I'm I love history and I love like some oddball thing that I didn't yeah. even know existed and there it is. Um that's pretty much it. I mean I am you know, I don't you know, I'm, I'm so busy between, you know, this show and, you know, trying to prep the uh, the rock and roll yeah. thing that, you know, I, there's not a lot of time. I also have two little kids, so there's a lot of a lot of that stuff. So um, I don't watch a lot of T V. Uh, or movies, for yep. example, I I saw Frozen recently. Which is <laughs> sure. Very good. Nine, Two little
1: kids. Ninety seven times. times. <laughs> yeah, it's so always
0: good. Ninety seven times is even better. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much it.
1: Um, I'm sure you have
0: researchers for the show, but do you yep. find yourself doing a ton of reading? for the show yeah I mean actually one thing I look forward to in life is reading something that doesn't have to do with a project I'm working on yeah. you know it's every pretty much everything I read I can't remember the last time I just picked up a book for pleasure and just read it that didn't have to do some ulterior motive like mm-hmm. oh okay well this is for the such and such project you know the good news for me I love history so a lot of the stuff I read here is you well, know it's enjoyable is, yeah way. I'd like to read it anyway but it is it is, you know stuff about Cuba the, the 30s you know gangster stuff you know, know just catching up on thought. stuff and yeah it's uh, you know so it's that that kind of stuff gotcha
1: well uh thank you so much for taking the time it's a to pleasure really it's
0: great talking to you yeah Indeed. You're, you're very good at this are <laughs> you. welcome now leaving nerdist.com